The fact of the matter is, is that people are thinking about what is inside buildings and they're all things they can't see. It was sort of like when Intel did the campaign of Intel inside, right? No one could see the computer chip, so you didn't care, but actually they made you care about it. In this case, a pandemic has made us think a lot about what are good environments for us to live, learn, and thrive in. And related to that is the tremendous political opportunity. There's all sorts of spending available from the Biden administration. You have states considering update programs to improve the quality of the air in their buildings and the HVAC system. So those are great opportunities for our members to hopefully provide people with better experiences. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Aaron Hilger, CEO of the Sheet Metal and Air Conditioning Contractors National Association, or SMACNA. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joanna. It's nice to be here with you. Good to see you again. Hey, so Aaron, tell us about SMACNA. Who are you and who do you represent? Sure. So SMACNA is the biggest mouthful in the association universe, or at least struggling to win for that. It's the Sheet Metal and Air Conditioning Contractors National Association. So we're an association of union contractors that do all the HVAC work and a lot of specialized manufacturing work in the construction industry. Aaron, why does union still matter? You know, union still matters for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, in the construction space, you can consider being union or non-union a choice. It's really a business choice and a way to structure your company. Union contractors have the ability to, you know, hire out of a union hall and they get a certain level or a high level of skilled workers to meet the needs they have. And they can employ those workers as they need them, send them back to the hall and get new workers. And, you know, obviously there's some flexibility built into that, which is highly useful. They also have, you know, a lot of travel benefits. If they want to move into a different area or they want to start a company in a different area, they have an immediate source of labor they can use. Translate, you experience the non-union sector where you're kind of on your own as a company hiring workers. That can have advantages and disadvantages. There's no perfect piece of apple pie on either side of the union or non-union cycle, but the the folks that have decided to be union contractors have you know either picked that business model now or picked it in their past and are successful with it. Hey, so Aaron, before we get into the things that SMACNA is doing to thrive, tell us a little bit about how you became CEO of SMACNA, because you're not from the DC area and now you're running this important national association based out of Chantilly, Virginia. That's a good question. You know, a search consultant, right after I took this job, not the one who did the search, said, well, you're like one of the one percenters. This never happens. Someone who runs a, a local or a state association never gets to run the national association. Oh, no kidding. And he was all happy and excited and someone I'd known for a long time. And he was, you know, very just tickled pink about the whole thing, right? 
So I suppose, you know, most people who get into these roles have a sideways convoluted, not a straight line path to getting in them. Many years ago, I was a contractor. My family was in the roofing and sheet metal business in the Buffalo area, and I was part of that business. For the last almost 20 years, I've been managing associations professionally in Rochester, New York. When I started at the Builders Exchange in Rochester, we had two organizations, the Builders Exchange and a related company called the Construction Industry Association of Rochester, which did all the collective bargaining for the basic trades, as well as the painters in the Rochester region. And you know, Builders Exchange was a 130-year-old organization, 135-year-old organization that was formed in 1888, formed because of collective bargaining. And you know, all those old associations in the Northeast and Midwest started because unions organized, so the contractors had to figure something out. And then some of them stayed as all union associations. Some of them grew into you know multi-headed entities with sort of general service association and then a union association. We were part of that group. When I left Builders Exchange, we had 13 associations under our umbrella, most in construction, some in high-tech and tourism, and also a for-profit company. So I spent about 19 years growing those businesses. I was fortunate enough to have two SMACTA chapters at the time. I had SMACTA Rochester, so I did that collective bargaining agreement and was involved with their industry, and also SMACTA New York State. So I got to represent the sheet metal contractors at the state level. So you got recruited to run the national, kind of recruited in a little bit. Yeah, it was a good thing. I, it was an interesting story. I, you know, I applied and had a great discussion with a search firm, and then didn't make it past the first screening, and then got resurrected within the process. And you know, obviously had a successful conclusion. So, Aaron, why was it a surprise to the consultant that somebody who was running a local got the national job? Why is that so rare? I mean, it makes sense. You're familiar with the contractors. You're familiar with the industry, with the business. Why is that so hard? So I think you see some of the exceptions in the commercial contractor space. I think Tim Brink has a very similar pattern at MCAA. The mechanical contractors, yep. He was a contractor. He ran a local association and then moved into that level. I think you see a lot less of it in other places. And I think that's because there's some level of bias. You know, the idea that, well, the national organization is so much different than the local organization, and you do all these things at a national level that require a bigger perspective or thought process. And by the way, you're typically, at least pre-Zoom era, we're mostly recruiting in the D.C. area. So you're really only going to get people who are from the national organizations applying. I think as the pandemic hit, I'll be curious to see if we see a change over time because you can be anywhere running thing and come from anywhere and run something. I'm actually seeing that. I'm seeing more clients, Aaron, get hired from outside the D.C. area. So I think that's changing. I am also seeing more CEOs continuing to live in different parts of the country and then coming into D.C. maybe once a month, twice a month to run the organization. So I think that's your situation, right? Your family's chosen to stay in Buffalo, but you're coming in here. So we actually are seeing quite a bit of that. And I think it's really to the benefit of the associations that they're able to source more talent. And that is my scenario as well. So my family's in Rochester, New York. They're seniors in high school. I have triplets. Oh my God. So we're in the middle of the whole college application process and all the fun things related to that or the times where you want to put an ice pick in your eye too. But there's a lot of different fun things with that. (laughs) So I commute back and forth. I'm here quite a bit. I'm all over the country at other times. Obviously, I'm going to move down here and be more present for our organization once that ends, respect to that structure, you don't necessarily want to keep forever if you're commuting weekly or every other week to the area. But I do think, you know, when running these large national groups and you have, you know, SMACTA has 100 chapters in the US, Canada, Australia, and Brazil, and I'm going to visit a lot of those chapters in any given year, 
it's likely that I'm going to be other places as much or more than I will be in you know New York or Virginia, certainly. So it just depends on timing and schedule. So how do you continue to foster a great working culture if you, the CEO, isn't necessarily based here in the DC area? Or does it matter? Or is that a myth in our brains because you're traveling so much anyway? If you really want to be intentional about your culture, that's the conventional wisdom, right? But I'm not sure that that's necessarily true, especially given that so many people are going remote. So how are you working through that with your staff? So I think you have landed on part of the myth. I think we've all had to contemplate a little bit of how life changed during the pandemic. And then it also gives us a chance to look at what was the CEO's normal travel pattern. And you know, I would suspect that most association CEOs aren't in their office half the time or some number like that. Maybe they're in there 40% of the time or 30% of the time. But we believe because they fly out of the airport close to the office that they're there all the time. Interesting perspective. And I think there's that idea that you have to be present to build a culture. And I think this is something we're all going to struggle with. At Smack now, I'm very blessed. I have a group of people who've been at the organization a very long time. They're dedicated to the organization. They get Smackness culture. They understand our members. As we add new people, I think that is where the challenge is. Because, you know, as the CEO, I can come up with, here's all the things I believe in. Here's the things I want to build as a company culture. Here are the things I'm going to demonstrate and show them, you know, what I want to do and lead them in that path. And they're, to a greater or lesser extent, as all teams do, people will come to grips with those ideas and work with them. And for the most part, I'm building on stuff that's already there. The challenge is, here's this new person who maybe is fresh out of college or from the Organic Paper Makers Association or the American Brewers or pick some random organization who's never been part of my association's culture. How do they learn that? Especially if they're going to be there one or two days a week and, you know, three days remote or something like that. Or I, you know, hired them there in Montana. You know, how do I bring them into that fold? And, you know, what, what are the orientation programs that we use to get people acclimated? How are we deliberate and intentional about interacting with new hires? How are their midline supervisors interacting with them and talking to them on a daily, weekly, whatever basis that they need to do? I've hired people remotely during the pandemic and I've not met them in person. And we're trying to be very intentional about bringing them into the culture. But what are you doing about that? So we actually had fully remote people before the pandemic in other states, largely in our technical department. Right before, during the pandemic, a few of our meeting planners ended up wanting to be remote. And those have been people who've all been around for a while. So those were easy transitions out. In my own pattern, as we bring on someone new that I'm really responsible for, I really look at how I change my own behavior. Because I used to like to practice management by walking around, which means you get to walk around your office and you can stop and say hi to people and you know have a cup of coffee and chat for a few minutes. Well, that doesn't work if they're not in the building. Right. So you have to then develop that organic interaction, which feels very frankly, forced and inorganic at times, because I need to like schedule a call or, hey, they're on Teams, so I can then ping them for just a second to a check-in and say, how are you doing? I think the hard part is it's really difficult to remember to do that with everyone. Right, right. I think that's fair. Hey, so what's it like running a national association compared to running a local association? I'll share a funny story with you for about my first day here. Please do. Yeah. So my technical first day in the office was January 3rd. And if you'll recall January in the DC area this year, we had an ice storm. There was probably a quarter inch glaze around everything. There's cars flying everywhere. And of course, Virginia was closed. I, of course, am the guy that grew up in Buffalo, New York and lived from Rochester. There was absolutely no way I was not going to uh, 
go to my office that day because this is my first day. <laughs> of course, as I'm driving in there, I'm watching these people skate everywhere going, well, this was a dumb decision, Aaron. If Morgan Freeman was narrating my life, he would have said, well, this is when Aaron died because he made a dumb decision to drive to the office. <laughs> and of course, I don't have the alarm code. I don't have the door code. I can't get in the building. Right. Because you haven't gotten your creds yet. I haven't gotten the creds yet. But, you know, four or five of my staff were there and we ended up having a lovely day doing pizza. And, you know, my first day transitioning in where, you know, I had the great advantage of knowing most of the SmackDown staff because I had been involved with um, SmackDown chapter since 2005. But I was really going to spend some time in my own mind, you know, connecting with some staff I didn't know as well, you know, spending a little bit of time with our labor and government folks that I talk to all the time, but now I just talk to them in a different role and start thinking about things we want to work on together. And then instead I was in an empty office with four people. So that was a, that was a funny first day to start with. I honestly don't find it any different at all. The work at a state level or a local level is going to be very similar to the work that you're going to do at a national level. The difference is the opportunity and the impact. They have the opportunity to have a much greater impact on the broader industry. Now, that can be an inch wide and 10 miles deep, though. At a local level, you might be an inch wide and 10 miles deep. So there's some nuances and differences in that space. But in terms of you know me joining SMACNA and, and coming in, I didn't really feel like it was much of a perspective change, except that I could say, huh, now I can go work on a labor contract or a government relations issue that has the uh, chance of impacting somebody in Maine or California when before it was just in New York. Uh, I thought that was a pretty cool moment. So for any recruiters who are listening out there, local association execs have benefit of knowing the industry and knowing the players. Why not consider them? Because I think you're absolutely right. Running an organization that maybe has a local focus isn't that different from running an association that has a national focus, but your impact is bigger. Interesting perspective. Yeah. And there are differences of degree, too. I mean, if you have a small local association with a few staff people, it's probably a lot bigger lift to bring them to a national group of 50 staff people. I had about 14, you know, and I went to an organization with about 40. That's a lift, yes. That's a lift, but it's not a giant lift. But in my past life as a contractor, I had more than 100 people that worked for me. So it's all in that individual's prior experiences and ability to relate those experiences at different levels. Hey, let's talk about SMACNA. SMACNA is different from your average trade association. First of all, your members are all union contractors. Second of all, your members are all contractors that have signed an agreement with SMART, the Sheet Metal Air Rail Transportation International Union. But signing an agreement with SMACNA doesn't make you a member. It makes you a contributing contractor in that you contribute what's called industry fund dollars to SMACNA. Now, a subset of these contractors do decide to affiliate with SMACNA by becoming members. So basically, regardless of member status, these contractors all contribute to SMACNA. But you've said that you have lots and lots of contractors that contribute but are not engaged. Now, Aaron, you're new to SMACNA, and you've said that member engagement is a top goal. So what are some things that SMACNA is doing to increase member engagement? Engagement is a thing that every association struggles with, and they probably define it differently depending on who you're talking to and, and what their goal is. And I, I still haven't found the magic bullet definition of that one, so someday maybe I'll come up with it. But be that as it may, you're right. SMACNA has a, a different membership model, and it's a membership model in a lot of ways that's very easy. People can choose to be a member, but if they don't choose to be a member, they still probably pay us. Exactly. So that can lead to 
a little bit of sleepiness in the organization in the sense that, you know, you can rely on the money coming in. So you don't necessarily have to be as innovative. You're not asking them to write their dues check every year in the same way you would be if you're running a dues-based organization. You may not be as innovative or focused on, you know, creating new programs or creating new sponsorship opportunities or ways for people to engage because you're not actually being rewarded for those any differently than you would be rewarded if you did the same thing that was successful last year. So I think the biggest thing for me with SMACNA and, you know, the one of the great benefits I have as I start this conversation is there's nothing broken. The association is very well managed. It's financially successful. It has a good budget and good staff. So you've got this great starting point. The energy that has been injected, though, is the energy of someone who ran both types of organizations. I had industry fund-based organizations as well as membership organizations. So some of our groups could be, you know, exactly like Smack now. There's a very stable revenue stream. You know what's coming. It's easy. You can add programs as the budget allows and kind of keep moving forward. Other groups every year, you know, sing for their supper every time they get a new member, right? They're just trying to work on that. So that energy really wasn't at SMAC then before. So the biggest change I think you see with me here is the idea that SMACNA can grow. You can actually engage with the members who pay us but aren't engaged or choose not to be members. And you simply do that by starting to talk to them. Those companies are entitled to a group of benefits that we need to share better with them already. And if we share that better, they're likely to become members and more likely to engage in lots of different ways. Even people who aren't engaged as SMACTA members rely on our products and services. We are a standards-creating organization. The gray SMACTA manuals that every person in the design community has probably looked at if they've built a building or built an industrial structure are ubiquitous in the industry. So people, even non-union contractors, use our standards. They're never going to be members of a union contractor organization from that perspective. So we have this big footprint, but we haven't really networked or capitalized around it, nor are we focused on it. So... The first step in that is replacing and updating our technology. I'm often asked, what was the biggest surprise at SmackDo when you took the organization over? And the biggest surprise was an AMS system that everybody's been working around for eight years. And AMS stands for Association Management System. So it's the membership system that runs your organization, right? Exactly. You know, there's three and a half pages as a document of other products and services that our different executive directors use to work around the association management system. Ah. And by the way, the product we were on had to be updated this year or in 2023 because it would no longer be supported. So congratulations. The first project that you get when you show up as the new CEO is this giant backbreaking pain in the rear end life sucker of a project, basically. But it also is a huge opportunity because it's going to allow me to reset the association. And the first step is doing the technology. The second step is having better data on your members. And the third step is using that data smartly. Yeah. And I'm hoping, and I, it sounds like you guys are just because I've had a chance to interact with your team, that you're taking the opportunity to rethink what data are we collecting? What are we going to do with it? And are we doing things the right way? Very much so. What are the things you really want to know? And then how do you want to record them? And how do you want to keep them? And what is the process you're using to do that? And, you know, SMACNA gets almost all of our members through our chapters. That's a lovely structure in a lot of ways and also a very dysfunctional structure because the data and information you get can be very disjointed, very different. Month to month, it can look different. And, you know, our staff has to figure that out. So there are electronic reporting and other things that we should have had 10 years ago that we have not put in place that we will be putting in place. Our own internal processes didn't support standardization particularly well. And with a cumbersome system, it was difficult to use. So it was easier just to create a new record all the time, as opposed to finding the right one and attaching to it. Hey, so Aaron, 
with this new kind of focus on trying to get more members engaged, you are adding a lot of new programming to get members at different levels from different parts of the country interested. So tell us about that, because that's new. Sure. So I'm going to start with you know the idea that SmackDown does three things really, really well. If you have to point at what the association is really known for and known with our members, our technical standards, which we've touched on a little bit, are important to the industry, highly useful to our members, involve a lot of work, very thoughtful. We have, I believe, one of the strongest labor relations programs in the unionized trades at a national level. And we have a great staff that does that. So labor is the second thing. And you know, the third area where we are incredibly strong is government relations. And we have a very strong staff. I've had you know people there for, and Stan Colby has been there for 30 years, or likely more than 30 years. He's the first SmackDown person I met in 1993 when I was an intern at the National Roofing Contractors Association. Wow. So that gives you some history on that. And he'd already been there three or four years. What we haven't necessarily done as well or resourced as much, because the programs we've had have been very good, is education. And SmackDown produces a lot of content, both in our technical standards, as well as in you know, all the other work we do in the industry. And you know we've had for many years, and I'm very aware of this as a chapter executive, some really good programs in their areas. Our Project Management Institute is very strong. Our Financial Bootcamp is very strong. Our Business Management University is very strong. But we've kind of kept three to five core programs and said, these are really good and they're kind of good enough. And they are great programs. They sell out. They hit all the metrics of being a positive thing. But we didn't say, well, what else should we be doing? And if you look at some of our peer associations, they resource some of those other things that I just talked about less heavily, and they resource education a lot more. I view this as an and. We're not taking away anything from our labor, government, or technical stuff, but we're adding resources and energy to our educational programs, our content, our content delivery as opposed to doing everything in person, a lot of it's, we all move to more remote, but there'll be more things that are shorter, quicker hits. Some of those three to five day programs might be a series of half day webinars or delivered in smaller chunks that are more digestible. So you're not losing a person for five days. So we're really shaking up that entire structure. One of the first changes I made in the second quarter is we did create an executive director that was focused on membership and education. You didn't have an executive director in that position before? We did not, no. Wow. Who was handling membership? We had a couple staff people who just kind of did it. So that's also one of the, I think, like the issues I described with technology would have been perhaps raised to a higher level if you'd had someone looking at it at that level, as opposed to the CEO just getting a report of here's how many members we are, and here's how the revenue looked from those members. And you know, here are the programs they went to, that sort of thing. But not really being involved or having someone who was at a high enough level struggling with the, well, you know, we enter all that manually. Or, you know, we, here's the three workarounds we did to be able to give you that report. So big change. Wow. All right. So it sounds like a bunch of new programming. You have something I saw on your website called the Heavy Metal Summer Camp. Tell us about that. That looks so interesting. And I think this kind of helps you accomplish a couple of goals. Sure. So when I go around the country and talk to our members, not surprisingly, when this is sort of a drumbeat in many industries, one of the things you'll hear is that workforce, you know, having enough people in the field, in the office are the things that you're concerned about. Every industry. Yeah, every industry's got that, right? And then you lead into then how do you get people into the construction industry? How do you expose them to the industry? Not as many people work in it today as they maybe did in the past for lots of different reasons. They may not be as connected to it as they were. And one of the great things that kind of arose out during the pandemic, it's not something we control, the heavy metal summer camp is its own entity, its own 501c3, although we are huge cheerleaders and supporters of it. 
you know, came out of the Bay Area and out of Seattle is this idea, and I can't believe I didn't do this in upstate New York, quite frankly, of exposing late stage high school kids or maybe people right out of high school to a week or two week program in a contractor shop where they can show up at the end of the workday. They spend, you know, four or five hours learning basic safety, learning the project, learning how to build something, draw it, build it, the whole structure of what a sheet metal worker would do, except for the field installation work. They will go throw some projects. They get to experience with their hands. Wow. They have work boots on and protective eyewear, the whole, we treat them like they are a construction worker and give them that idea that this is what a career could like in here. The first year there were two camps. Last year there were 11 or 12. I suspect we'll be north of 20 next year. Oh my God. This is a really cool thing. We're getting some workers out of it. The hit rate on that is always a little bit questionable, but the idea that we're exposing people to an interesting career and, you know, I don't care if they, I mean, I want them to be a sheet metal worker. I want them to join our contractor shop. But if they join another construction career, I'm happy with that too, because God knows we need people all over. I do think we've seen a substantial trend though, in terms of a greater friendliness factor at school districts about having trades in their career days. You know, certainly in upstate New York, where I was spending a lot of time doing this kind of stuff and supporting the trades doing that 10 years ago, 12 years ago, it was kind of tolerated great activity to send the middle school kids to for a career day or hands-on stuff. But, you know, once you hit high school, it was kind of like, yeah, stay away. We don't really want you guys around here. We're That's going to hurt our metrics. And, you know, now with my kids being in high school, every year there have been a few trades in all of their programs. So, I mean, I did it a couple times. Nice. So like that's change, I think is, you know, that's an end of one, but I think that change is happening in, in many other places as well. I certainly saw it throughout schools in Rochester, Buffalo, and Syracuse, where I was paying more attention to over time. But I do think we have a lot of jobs available. They pay very well. They are not the construction job of the 1940s, where you picked up something heavy and carried it up the ladder and did work. Yes, there's hard work involved, but there's a lot of technology and there's a lot of skill. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity. Then we need to figure out smart ways to get those notions in front of people. Hey, before we go, I want to talk to you about your indoor air quality standards. Because it's an interesting set of standards that you have education around it, but it's also kind of a political area for you. So it's kind of an interesting topic. So tell us about that. I think this is an amazing opportunity right now. Three years ago, if you went and looked at a building, you probably walked in and you said, oh, it's a nice looking building. And I, there's a few plants around and a beautiful atrium. And I go to my desk and I sit down and I work and maybe you're tired in the afternoon, but you think you just need a coffee. And now you walk into a building and you wonder, huh, am I safe here? Am I going to get COVID in this building? Or, you know, what's the air quality like? Or, you know, why is everybody sleepy? And then you realize your CO2 content in that building is higher ah. and it's not ventilated properly because we're building buildings that are so well sealed now that they don't necessarily get enough air at times. And I'm not an expert in this space by any means. And I'd put you on with Eli, who should certainly talk to you for a few hours about how we build and change buildings over the years. But the fact of the matter is, is that people are thinking about what is inside buildings and they're all things they can't see. It was sort of like when Intel did the campaign of Intel inside, right? No one could see the computer chip, so you didn't care, but actually they made you care about it. In this case, a pandemic has made us think a lot about what are good environments for us to live, learn, and thrive in. And related to that is the tremendous political opportunity. There's all sorts of spending available from the Biden administration. You have states considering update programs to improve the quality of the air in their buildings and the HVAC system. So those are great opportunities for our members to hopefully provide people with better experiences. And that's because your members 
install and upgrade the heating, ventilating, and air conditioning systems. They also do the testing and balancing. Correct. So this is a gigantic opportunity for your members. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we have enough people to do building assessments in the industry in general, not just within our members. You know, if every building actually checked its fire dampers properly, which some states require you to do, some don't. If every building decided they wanted to measure their indoor air quality in all of their spaces, that's tens of thousands of people who we probably don't employ right now. Wow. That's a great opportunity and a great challenge. So we have TAB, testing and balancing contractors, who will do that work. There's sort of the stepchild of the industry in the sense that they kind of come at the end of the project. They're not responsible for installing the system, but they're the people who make sure the system works really well. Then they'll come in and measure air quality and airflow and all the things around that so that you know as the owner and as someone who's working and living in that building that your system is actually working properly. I think the other thing you'll see is a much greater focus over time on maintenance. You know, it's very easy to install a new system and forget about it until something goes wrong, but that's probably not the right way to do that. But that costs money actually too. So buildings will focus on the thing that's most important at that time. And we've, I think, increased the relative importance of air quality in the last few years. So Aaron, you've been in place how long now as CEO? This is month 12 in December. So how's membership? Membership is good. You know, so SMACT is in that unique space where we certainly want to engage with the folks who pay us, but don't actually choose to be a member. And there's a, a nice opportunity there. But overall, the membership is good. You know, if you look at our, we don't really have a renewal rate because people always renew because it's part of the collective bargaining agreements once they join, typically. There's always some you lose in terms of normal life and business transition and that sort of thing. Membership is very stable. Work opportunities are, are growing or expanding. And I think their challenges are, how do you fill those work opportunities? There are somewhere north of 40 mega projects coming online in the next three to five years, or maybe seven years, depending on the group of projects we're looking at. A project like the Blue Oval Ford plant in Tennessee, that will require somewhere between 700 and 800 sheet metal workers. That local has about 200. There's a project labor agreement on it. So oh my God! all of these types of projects are industry altering. They're actually a chance for the entire industry to grow and add more workers with sustained work. So from that perspective, membership's great. From the other perspective, oh my God, we got to solve that problem. And it's obviously a top priority for us and our labor partner, which is smart to really figure out. Hey, Aaron, this has been so interesting. I can sit and talk to you all day. And in fact, I'd love for you to come back sometime and let's talk about what the industry as a whole is doing to really attract people because that project that you just talked about, maybe in six months, we'll talk about how the heck you all are staffing that. That'll be fascinating. I'd love to do that. All right. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. You're most welcome. It's a pleasure chatting as always, too. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. 
don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.